Hi there, and welcome back to Toxic Bliss, Surviving Narcissism, with me, Eowyn Reese. We're back after a short break, and I have a lot of new projects I've started, and now that all of those are rolling, it's time to get back to Mike and his antics. In case you're just finding this podcast and don't know what I'm all about, there are links in the description of this episode to all of my social media, my YouTube channel, and my partner podcast, with Paul from Reporting Live from My Sofa, where we cover some very interesting true crime cases, both past and present. Also on my YouTube channel, you can find several series that I've worked on recently, uh, Three Minute Mindfulness, wherein I share on-the-fly visualization techniques to help you get through the day. And then I have my brand new Mindful and Fit series, where you can follow along with me as I embark on a challenging journey to health, wellness, and fitness. I also have some video game Let's Plays, but with everything else going on, those are kind of taking a back seat for a while. But check the description for links so you can find me all over the internet. And with that, it's time to get back to our story. So let's jump right in. Mike had been staying with his mother in Kentucky, but talking with me daily about coming home. I had given him a long list of expectations and boundaries with clear consequences and the strong admonition that this was the last hurrah. If things went south, there would be no more chances. He was agreeable to everything. He was apologetic and emotional. He said everything that I wanted to hear, and he said it convincingly. Of course I had doubts about his sincerity, but I still thought that he could change. I still believed that with enough love and nurturing, I could fix him, and we could be happy. I was still chasing that version of Mike that I had fallen in love with, and any chance of getting him back full-time seemed worth it. He had been working at the coal mines in Kentucky to save up some cash to get back to Connecticut and to get us off on the right foot. I was pleased with that, and at least I didn't have to pay for his bus ticket this time. He also seemed to learn the lesson that having a job means having some cash in your pocket, and that was useful. I had talked to Mike's mother on the phone a few times while he was staying with her. She seemed surprised to hear that she had another grandchild. Apparently, Mike had never told her about Mac until recently. I didn't like that very much, but then again, Mike had never talked to his mother that I knew of during all the time that we had been together. When I had initially asked about his parents, he told me a long story of neglect and abuse. His father, his stepfather, his step-siblings, and even his own mother had turned their backs on him for a variety of reasons. All of them not his fault, of course. I had a conversation at some point with his stepbrother who told me a few stories that contradicted Mike's version of events, surprise, and gave me some insight into Mike's eternal victim playbook. It was true that Mike had had a difficult childhood, but it wasn't nearly as traumatic as Mike led me to believe. The family had not turned their backs on Mike as such, but they had collectively become tired of his entitled attitude, the constant sob stories about how the world had conspired against him and he could never get ahead, and the frequent requests he would make for money and help. Each request would be accompanied by an incredibly and incredulous dramatic tale of unfortunate events and an equally dramatic explanation of his plans for the future and how just a little bit of money could make all of his dreams come true. This was a hallmark characteristic of Mike that I had already come to see for myself. Future planning. Mike had a lifelong habit of distracting from the current mess 
by painting a very alluring picture of the future. During one of our many phone calls while he was in Kentucky, I had asked him about the girls in Florida, his daughters that he had with Tina. Had he talked to them? How were they doing? Had he talked to Tina about a reasonable child support agreement or visitation? He just laughed it off and explained that he hadn't talked to Tina or the girls at all. At first he tried to blame this entirely on Tina and how she was just a mean hater and wouldn't let him talk to the kids as many times as he had tried. And he did try. He really wanted to talk to his daughters. But Tina just wouldn't allow it. She wished he was dead. I didn't fully buy this explanation, as I had witnessed Tina in person for months, and that didn't sound at all like her. I pressed him on that by saying once he got back, we would call Tina and work out a child support arrangement and at least some phone calls with the girls, and he said he didn't want to do that, which contradicted everything he had just said. When I pointed out that contradiction, he deflected by getting angry and telling me that I was a busybody and I should really learn to mind my own business because people hate it when I try to get involved in their lives. Right. I dropped the subject for the time being, but filed it away for a later date. There was a lot on my mind at this point in time. Although most of me did genuinely want Mike to come back, and I was eager for another chance for us to try to work things out and maybe even get it right, I also knew that there was a very low probability for that to happen. I had spent enough time away from him to be able to see more clearly, and I knew there was a host of issues that we'd have to address in order for a healthy relationship to evolve. I doubted Mike's sincerity as to his willingness to face these issues and make the changes and compromises, but I also did truly believe that it was worth at least one more shot. My love for him was vast and deep, even though it was heavily marred by the events of the last few years. But this was it. It was time. Mike was getting on a bus and heading back to Connecticut, and he would arrive the next day. Was I really ready for this? I noted that instead of feeling happy and excited, I was filled with a sense of trepidation. You know, that wasn't the energy that I had hoped for to launch our new last chance. I almost felt a bit guilty. Here's an example of how Mike had twisted my thinking over the years to always question what I felt and see myself as the antagonist. I wondered if I was being fair to Mike. Was it right to encourage him to come back when I wasn't even sure I wanted him back? When I knew almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that it would end in flames? Didn't he deserve someone who could love him and care for him without all of the fear and doubt and suspicion that I had in my heart whenever I thought of him? Looking back on this now, what I see are thoughts in my head that were not mine, but Mike's. The questions I was asking myself here are the very same ones that he would ask, painting himself as the victim and me as the aggressor. I had been programmed over time to accept responsibility for his state of mind. When he acted badly and I responded with anger, as justified as it was on many occasions, somehow that made me the bad guy. I was simply not allowed to be angry with him or think ill of him in any way, regardless of what he had done to warrant that. Whenever I expressed those feelings, it was clear that I was the one in error, 
I had a serious character flaw, and I needed to fix it. I remember this so well. So many times I would end up saying something like, You can't get mad at me for getting mad at you for doing something wrong. You did a bad thing. Being angry about that is a natural and healthy reaction. You need to change your behavior if you don't want me to get angry with you. But it never worked out that way. I learned to always question myself far more than I should ever question him. And here I was doing it again. And he wasn't even home yet. <sighs> Let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. And then when we get back, Mike comes home again. Welcome back. Mike was on the bus. I had about 12 hours before he arrived, and in preparation for the big event, I was doing, well, nothing. I wasn't overly fussed about it, to be honest. I didn't bother getting my hair done or panicking over what outfit to wear or even making sure my apartment was spotless. I didn't even plan a nice welcome home cooked meal. I simply did not feel the need to try to impress him or change one iota of my normal life to suit him. My life was established now. I had spent enough time on my own to be fully comfortable with the single mom, sweatpants-wearing, ponytailed hair, toys-all-over-the-floor kind of lifestyle. And if he didn't like that, oh well, no sweat off my back. It was a very interesting feeling. It was empowering, secure, stable, and for me, very, very different from the norm. I think that I honestly didn't care if he came back or not. If he did, and he could find his place in the construct of my life without requiring me to change anything, then great, swell, lovely. But if he acted out or demanded all kinds of compromises and adjustments, well, he could hit the road. Nobody got time for that. If he wanted a big home-cooked Sunday dinner type affair, well, he knew where the kitchen was. I would cook if and when I wanted to. If we had beanie weenies for dinner, so would he. Simple as. I also think that part of me refused to get excited about his return because I didn't think it was going to last. I didn't want to get used to the idea of having him around and then have to go through the pain of readjusting again. My life was my life, and if he came or went my life would still be the same, and that was comforting. It was cold and snowy on the day he arrived, mid-February of 2003. The kids and I had gone outside and down to the market to get some milk and things, and honestly, just because I wanted to play in the snow for a bit. We got back inside and decided that some hot cocoa was definitely in order. Maggie and I sat down to steaming mugs of hot cocoa topped with marshmallow fluff. Wait, wait, wait. There's a story here. I need to interrupt for a second. Marshmallow fluff. If you're from New England, then you're probably intimately acquainted with this concoction. If you're not, you should run out and buy some. It's magical. I was raised on fluffernutters. This could be part of the reason that I had to start a Mindful and Fit series. <laughs> and fluff was a staple in my home. Until one day... I had gone into the bathroom to take a bubble bath one evening and told Maggie to keep an eye on her brother. He had just started crawling around and couldn't be left alone without eyes on him, even in the playpen since he figured out how to climb out of that. So she said she'd watch him, and he was laying on his little play area mat thing and 
playing with some toys quite happily, so I figured it was safe. I had a nice long bath, and when I came out, I noticed that Mac's play mat was empty, and Maggie was sitting on the couch coloring. Where's Mac? I asked, calmly at first. She looked at the floor and said, oh, I don't know. Great, I thought. I looked back toward the bathroom and saw into the kitchen, and, well, I wasn't sure what I was seeing at first. There was this small white blob sitting underneath the kitchen table. Its eyes blinked at me and its mouth broadened into a wide smile. It was only then that I realized this little monster thing was actually my son, covered from head to toe in marshmallow fluff. Oh my god. Somehow, he had managed to grab hold of the jar of fluff on the table and wrestle off the lid and thought this would be a great tactile exercise and proceeded to paint his entire body hair, face, arms, torso, feet, every inch of himself with the white sticky goop. As I stood there in silence, my brain was busy trying to process the scene and come up with a plan of action. He just sat there giggling away merrily to himself. How do you even start to clean up something like this? I had half a mind to call my mother and ask her for help. Instead, I remembered that I had just gotten out of the tub and as my tub drained really slowly, it was probably still full of warm, bubbly water. I reached under the table and tried to pick Mac up, which was far more difficult than I had imagined. Yes, fluff is sticky, but when one's body is fully coated, it's also quite slippery. I managed to grab him eventually and held him out at arm's length, lest he grab hold of my hair or touch me or anything, <laughs> and I deposit him straight into the tub. I told Maggie to get to work in the kitchen, cleaning under the table, the chairs, the floor, anywhere he had managed to touch, and then I set to work on defluffing the boy. I don't know if it's a good idea to wash marshmallow fluff down a drain, but it seemed to melt and dissolve a bit in the water, which was handy. It took about an hour to completely clean him, and then peel off his clothes and diaper and wash his hair, but I did it. Mac and I emerged from the bathroom squeaky clean, and Maggie had done a stellar job cleaning the mess in the kitchen. I threw out the remaining fluff and never, ever bought it again. That story encapsulates my life as a single mother. These kids never cease to surprise me with their adventurous spirits and unforeseen levels of creativity. It was fun times, my friend. Fun times. But back to the tale at hand. Such a downer to go from hilarious kid stories to talking about that creep Mike, but I guess that's what we're here for. So, where were we? Oh yes, Maggie and I were sitting down with our delicious mugs of hot cocoa. I had mixed a little of the hot cocoa with some cold milk in a sippy cup for Mac, so he wouldn't miss out on the fun. We had all just snuggled down in the living room to watch Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets for the 12,567th time, when there was a knock at the door. Oh dear. I sighed and walked to the door, taking a deep breath before opening it. And in walked Mike, loudly carrying armfuls of bags and boxes, boisterously calling out for Maggie to come give him a hug. He was home! Yay! Yay! My peaceful little life was shattered, and I knew right then and there that this had been a mistake. 
The only question that remained was how to mitigate the damage that I knew was eventually coming. That evening passed remarkably well, though, all truth being told. When Mike was in Hoover mode, or what I call love-bombing mode, he was quite pleasant and even charming to be around. He had brought toys for the kids and even stopped at the bakery across the street and gotten them each their favorite donut. There was a bouquet of flowers for me. I didn't even yell at him for tracking his dirty, snowy shoes straight through the living room. We cuddled all together in the living room and finished watching Harry Potter. Mike put the kids to bed himself, tucking them in extra lovingly, because he knew he had to win points not only with me, but also with them. And then we sat down to talk. We kept the conversation light and avoided anything dramatic that night, simply enjoying each other's presence without conflict. It was nice. It felt good. I remember wishing against all hope that it could always feel that way, even though I knew better. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. In the next episode, we'll see what happens and how Mike adjusted this new life with all of these limits and rules and consequences, and if he can manage to maintain some semblance of normalcy. But until then, thank you for listening. Take care and talk to you soon. People ask me what my secret is, I just smile and say,